economics is the study of human choice in the world we live. Faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. By investigating faith in economics, we can learn how they lead to human flourishing. This is the Faith in Economics podcast, a presentation of the Gortney Institute at Ottawa University. Welcome to our show today. I'm Lawson Medlin, producer and graduate assistant elect for the Gortney Institute. We have Dr. Russ McCullough, the founder of the Gordon Institute and Wayne Angel Chair of Economics, Dr. Justin Clark, the Menard Family Professor of Philosophy and Ethics, Dr. Peter Jacobson, the Gordon Professor of Economic Education and Research, and finally, our graduate assistant, Luke Graham. All right, well, Justin brought up the topic of power and wealth, and not sure where we're going to go with this, but, uh, you know, it's often said that people in politics are in it for the power because there's not a lot of money in it. But then we all know that a lot of times people who are very wealthy have the opportunities to get into politics. And so I think there's a bit of entanglement that goes on there. And then furthermore, after you've been in politics and you learn some inside information and you've been inside the beltway, uh, there've been plenty of politicians, Bernie um, uh, Sanders comes to mind that uh, ended up having a million dollar net worth later and could claim as, as gained some wealth. So I'm not exactly sure where Justin's going to take us on this travel, but those are some opening thoughts of mine thinking about power and wealth. Justin? Well, um, the topic uh, came to my mind when I was reading a bunch of uh, reports about the situation in Ukraine. Um, and there are a lot of developments that are being described as, uh, well, this is actually good for the United States. Um, and what they mean in that case is that it's good for the United States as geopolitical power. Um, and so uh, I have a very particular kind of power in mind when I'm talking. So when we say power, it's a very vague term. But if we would define power um, or the type of power that we're talking about as geopolitical power, which is control over a territory, um, then um, some things are going to be, um, you know, increase the United States as geopolitical power, and some things are going to decrease the United States as geopolitical power. And oftentimes people will say, you know, this is good for the United States, right? And, um, and uh, another way things can be good for the United States is that it increases the actual amount of wealth that the United States has. Um, and I think these two things often get conflated with each other, and they ought not to be. And it actually turns out that there's a lot of, uh, I would contend, there's a lot of things that might increase uh, the United States' geopolitical power that actually decrease the United States' wealth. And so if you're a citizen, I think what you should be more worried about is um, uh, trying to increase the, the wealth of the United States rather than um, decrease, rather than increasing the United States' geopolitical power. And in fact, you can see that states uh, and especially uh, politicians are very, very keen sometimes to burn a lot, uh, large amounts of wealth in order to increase their geopolitical power. Yeah. I have debates with a friend of mine sometimes who works, uh, or uh, I guess doesn't work for the intelligence apparatus, um, works for some company that definitely isn't part of that intelligence apparatus. But he's often telling me that like the, the State Department really has my best interests in, at heart. Um, <laughs> and I don't think so. Uh, I think that the state the State Department has the best interest of increasing the United States' geopolitical power. And I think that's often diametrically opposed to the interest of the citizens of the United States um, who would rather increase their wealth. And might have interest in building their own personal wealth as an employee or an elected official within that 
complex. Yeah, and the, and the other thing to note about uh, this concept of power and this concept of wealth is that uh, power on this, uh, by this definition, is necessarily going to be zero sum, right? Um, control of the geopolitical uh, mm -hmm. geopolitical control over a territory is binary, and so um, any increase in the United States' geopolitical power is going to be a decrease in uh, somebody, somebody else's, else's geopolitical way. power. Now, that's um, a good point to bring up. Let's let's define wealth really quick for the listeners, um, uh, just so we all kind of are on the same page as we think about it. Uh, so the general equation would be the dollar value of your assets minus the dollar value of your debts or what you owe at any given point in time. So we can, Adam Smith talked about the wealth of nations. And, and so we got to be a little bit careful because it gets complicated fast when we start talking about the wealth of a country. Um, you have private citizens wealth. So as we add up all of the individual's wealth, their little balance sheet that they have, everybody's net worth, uh, we would come up with the wealth of the nation. But then we've also got complications with the debts of the government and us collectively being obligated to those through our government. So our national debt in the United States is around 23 trillion, roughly equal to our income. Um, there's some complicated things with government owing one side of government owing other side of government, but we owe plenty to the Chinese and other governments around the world and private citizens. Um, I think that's around 16 trillion now once you net out some of the intra-governmental debt. But um, it just comes to mind for me for this conversation because as you're taking on geopolitical power, trying to get yourself positioned, we're likely financing that with deficit, uh, adding on to our debt, decreasing the wealth of our nation as we take on more debt without having assets to back it up. If we don't own land in Ukraine, for instance, or whatever, if we have something that shows up on the balance sheet, that would tend to increase our wealth. Uh, I think where you were going with that was the ability to build more wealth over time because of our geopolitical power that might increase prosperity for either individual citizens or or otherwise. That's um, not where I was going. Okay. But, but. Well, that, that's where my mind was at. I don't know. Peter, what do you think? Well, yeah. So I, I think wealth one, as far as defining and stuff. One thing that I'm going <clears> to <throat> challenge off the bat, which I don't think Justin was exactly saying, but you might take the, it away from what you're saying, is if you think of wealth and power as completely different concepts that are unrelated in every sense, I'm opposed to that. And my general view is that although wealth does not isn't maybe immediately liquid into a particular type of power, like it can't immediately be turned into a particular type of power. My view is that enough wealth could buy maybe like, I think I'd be willing to say any power in the world. And so, uh, you know, first off, you can literally just buy the right to control things from people. And so that's wealth turning into power in one way. But even the people who like maybe you couldn't reason with, for example, uh, you can still beat those people. And if you're wealthy enough, the wealthier you become, uh, the higher your probability of beating that person in a conflict becomes. And so even though there's not like an exchange rate between dollars and the amount of uh, power out there that you can buy or something like that, there is some amount of dollars that could buy any particular position of power. So there's an interesting trade-off going on here, I think, between the two that I agree with you, Justin, the U.S. government is willing to burn a lot of piles of wealth to grab just a little bit of geopolitical power um, but I think part of what's going on there is the U.S. government, weirdly enough, has the 
power to burn that wealth, but they can't actually take that wealth themselves. In other words, they're burning someone else's wealth. Mm -hmm. So it's actually more expensive for them to take it from someone than it is for them to set it on fire, I think is at least part of what's going on here. Do, do, you, do you think I'm right on analysis wise, or do you think that maybe there is some power that escapes the wealth? No, I think, uh, I think that was part of my point is okay. that there is this, um, this uh, ability to turn wealth into power, mm -hmm. right? It's, and that's exactly what I'm objecting to. Um, uh, what I am saying is that, strictly speaking, geopolitical power, narrowly defined, and wealth are two different things. Not that there's no trade-off between the two, sure. but that uh, we often get told uh, by the press, the corporate press, that um, things are good for us, the nation, when it's an increase in our geopolitical power, um, Like that um, this distinction isn't made and it, and it ought to be made because the increases in political power often come at the expense of our wealth for the exact reason that, that you just stated, which is that you can turn some wealth into power. And you're also 100% right that um, the US government is not only burning our wealth to do this, uh, they are more than willing to burn the wealth of other people. So, uh, you know, if you take the situation in, uh, you know, the Ukraine-Russia situation, Russia has always been willing to throw bodies at problems, right? That's how Russia, mm -hmm. um, you know, uh, beat the Nazis on the Eastern Front is by just throwing massive amounts of bodies at this problem. And so, you, uh, again, Russia is throwing bodies at Ukraine, right? But uh, one of the things that I don't think maybe Russia anticipated is that uh, NATO is willing to just throw Ukraine at Russia uh, and just destroy Ukraine <laughs> in order to uh, keep Russia throwing bodies at it. And then there was a headline today, which um, this is what the headline that really prompted this. There's a headline in the Washington Post that said that uh, insiders in Biden's administration have said that um, they don't that um, the national security apparatus does not see a way for either Russia or Ukraine to win this conflict. But they are uh, urging Zelensky not to negotiate a peace. Hmm. So that means they are trying to keep this conflict going on. They see uh, some value in the destruction that is happening. Mm. Yeah, so I I think one way that we can sort of get at because I I agree with you I think on to some extent, but I think it might help listeners at home if we compare institutions. And so one type of institution that we're all pretty familiar with is like a, a business, and in a business, the owners of the business have power over the business, but they also have the ability to cash in that power directly. In other words, you can sell a business. And so you can transfer that power over the business, the right to control its assets, for example, or do specific things with the property that the business owns or the brand or things like that. You can directly sell that power to control the brands and the assets of the company uh, for some dollar amount for, for money, whatever the price of the business is. Things are a little bit different, though, when it comes to governments. The United States government actually can't sell its ability, or politicians in the government can't sell its ability to control the assets of the United States of America. That's excluded from what's legal in our system. Now, sometimes people sell their offices, things like that. That maybe kind of approaches the same thing firms do. But the point is, 
in economics would say there's no residual claimants in the U.S. government. There's no person who has the right to profit uh, from the government's activities. Like if the government makes a bunch of tax revenue money uh, and then they spend less than that and they make a profit, no one gets to keep that profit. And so there is control over the assets of the governments. And so politicians are able to decide what we should do with our tanks and our bombs and our missiles uh, and tax revenue. Uh, but they can't sell that control to someone else. But that doesn't mean they can't convert it. And so there's always, I think, the ability to convert power into wealth, uh, but the process is more roundabout. And so politicians can't sell the right to my tax dollars, but they can do something else. They can use my tax dollars to engage in some sort of other activity which benefits them personally and sort of extract my tax dollars value that way. And so, for example, I'm not saying this is what's going on here, but it's a good example. I think it's not crazy to believe that this plays some role. A politician could promise that if, you know, uh, uh, for example, Raytheon or some defense contractor company uh, gives them a lot of money from a campaign, then they will sell that company my tax dollars. And the way they'll do that is by contracting with Raytheon to build a bunch of missiles or something like that. And so this conversion process is not as good as the market because you've got all these like four or five steps around, you know, you've got to kind of do these uh, deals that are not quite, you know, normal selling. And uh, I also didn't agree to it, which is a big problem because my my willingness to, to sell my tax dollars doesn't come in at all. Uh, but that that's kind of what I think maybe is going on here is we're engaged in this roundabout uh, takings process where where politicians can't sell the right to my tax dollars. And so they've developed this other way to do it. Yeah. And maybe the other way involves one more step, right? Which is not just contracting uh, and giving tax dollars to Raytheon, right? But giving uh, huge amounts of aid to another nation with the understanding that they will use that aid to purchase weapon systems from Raytheon. Sure. Right. Um, which is or giving actually the happens. weapons themselves. Yeah. Yeah. Right. I mean, and that's what I believe we've done. We've not we've done both. A, well, we've done both, but. We've also just delivered the weapons. So if we give the Raytheon weapons, then that's another way of getting more business to Raytheon through the policy. And that's um, it's about time for our break. But that's where this geopolitical power I want to define a little bit better. And with your comment about the con the conflict continuing and that there's value in it, that was one of the areas I was thinking. And I think there's maybe more to to think about. But is that the value that we can have? some defense contractors um, profiting, that's part of the value of having the continuing conflict. So we'll let Justin tackle that uh, prompt in just a little bit, we'll be back. The Gordon Institute at Ottawa University is the best place in the Midwest for free enterprise education and its contribution to human flourishing, faith and economics in action. We have some great high school events like PPE Fest. This is an event where students get to listen to some world-renowned speakers and then participate in competition geared around philosophy, politics, and economics. Our everyday economics program is just a half day on a Saturday, and we have integrated discussion about our Common Sense Economics book that's written by Dr. Jim Gortney and some other authors. If you're interested in programs like these for high school students, please contact Peter, Justin, or Russ today. If you enjoy our podcast and want to support our work, please consider a one-time or recurring donation. For more info, please visit the Gordon Institute page on the Ottawa University website. Ottawa University has an exciting new major, PPE, which stands for Philosophy, Politics, and Economics. 
Each of these three fields is interesting in their own right, but they intersect in ways that are important to understand, both individually and for your community. If you find philosophy interesting, but want to make sure that your study of the subject is practical, if you enjoy economic analysis, but want to see how economic laws interact with moral principles, if you are interested in politics, but want to explore how economic and ethical realities constrain our political choices, you should consider the PPE program at Ottawa University. Gordon Institute is offering free uh, econ classes and events to homeschool students in the Ottawa area. In these classes and events, we'll cover topics like scarcity, supply and demand, economic fallacies, and the importance of economic freedom. If you're interested in events like this, contact one of our Gordon Institute professors today. All right, so we're back here talking about power and wealth, and I wanted to get a little clearer picture on geopolitical power. I got to say that my first thought was we help out, to just use Ukraine for an example, we help out Ukraine and they come out in a decent way with this conflict with Russia, and now we have an ally that we can lean on in that area, thinking about it more physically, and then that gives us longer term leverage to uh, maybe gain wealth either privately or otherwise in that area. That's what I was thinking, but I feel like I'm I'm not hitting all the cylinders that Justin's hitting. So what is this geopolitical power? Can you drill down that a little bit more? Yeah. So I remember I defined geopolitical power very precisely. It's <laughs> well, I wasn't listening. Of over, uh, over a given territory. Yeah. Um, uh, control, but we're not really controlling. We're not taking over the area. Uh, so the, uh, how does it relate to the United? I'm thinking United States connection of geopolitical power as Ukraine, if they're successful. Is it through an ally relationship or? Yes. And many of our allies are really just vassal puppet states of the. Uh, <laughs> okay. okay. Well, the that's now you finally right? so, uh, the beans. So, you know, uh, if you listen to somebody like Chomsky, right, who I very much disagree with on some. Um, you know, uh, domestic economic policies. But I think he gets one thing about foreign policy, right? He said, you know, we used to build bases um, to help to help us fight wars, right? We would uh, get in a war and we'd fight and we'd need a base. And now the United States government gets into wars so that we can build bases. <laughs> um, and if you look at the amount of bases that we have around the globe, and this is something that, you know, Ron Paul and Ron Chomsky, and Ron Paul and Ron Chomsky, Ron Chomsky, <laughs> right? Uh, uh, the... Uh, the child, the child of Ron Paul and uh, Noam Chomsky. Um, they, they were they were both very much on the same page about this, which is the United States has a, uh, an incredible amount of bases around the globe. And what we do with that is we just kind of assert military uh, supremacy where things don't happen in these countries unless um, really the United States government approves of it. Uh, you can look at the way the uh, government that uh, Zelensky headed was installed in Ukraine via a coup in, uh, you know, I think it was 2014, um, so uh, I think it very much is uh, control over these areas. And uh, so the, the actual thing that I had, um, you know, the quote from the Washington Post this morning was privately, U.S. officials say neither Russia nor Ukraine is capable of winning the war outright, but they have ruled out the idea of pushing or even nudging Ukraine to negotiate. So uh, we don't think either of these things uh, can win um, by themselves, but we uh, we will not um, push or even really allow Ukraine to negotiate. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, that means that uh, 
you know, the, the U.S. government must see some benefit in allowing Russia to like continue to throw bodies at this problem, right? That we somehow weaken Russia um, by uh, keeping this conflict going in Ukraine. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Well, I think when we talk about this geopolitical power concepts, we like we can we can imagine two different types. So I think Russ alluded to this too, uh, which is that we could actually imagine that the United States having more control over certain regions in the world could actually lead to higher wealth for its own citizens, right? Uh, it's imaginable. And so like a good counterfactual example is like if another country was trying to invade the U.S., right? Let's say Mexico hypermilitarized and got, you know, uh, is, uh, to be a very big threat to the United States. I just use them as an example because they're next door. And they start the invasion. And that invasion is going to result in you basically all your property is going to be destroyed. All your assets are going to be gone. Uh, if you live through the thing, you're going to be a much poorer person than you were before sort of deal. If instead the United States decides to take control of Mexico with its own military operation, you might end up with relatively higher wealth. And so in this case, there's a positive relationship between the citizens wealth and this geopolitical power. And so actually we could imagine the, imagine the trade-off not existing at all, uh, that you're in a situation where you have to burn the wealth to preserve the future wealth. It's almost like an investment. Yeah. That's what I was thinking too, that being more like an investment. Yeah, yeah, that's that's exactly right. And so you're kind of getting rid of your wealth today for more future wealth, again, compared to the situation where you're invaded. But this doesn't have to be the case. We can also imagine geopolitical power uh, being something else. I When I hear the word geopolitical power, I just think that's a term for uh, politicians' ability to turn taxpayer wealth into their own wealth or their own consumption through various activities. That's how I think of geopolitical power. So I actually don't think these military bases mostly benefit people who live in Kansas, for an example. For example, I think it mostly benefits the people who live in Washington, D.C. or who work for these big lobbying firms or stuff like that. I think there are people who benefit from war. You know, Eisenhower was the one who pointed out we had to worry about the military industrial complex of all people. Uh, but again, politicians have this annoying problem where they can't just, you know, write a check from my bank account to uh, their buddies to give them a payoff. And so instead, what they can do is they can turn my money into geopolitical power, which benefits them personally, whether it's, you know, by being a hero on the world stage. It could even be something as small as that or something more uh, insidious, like, you know, the big guy getting his 10 percent or something like that. You heard it here first. Both Russ and Peter think war is a good investment. Relative to the counterfactual, yeah. that is sometimes possible. Look, uh, it's it's a hundred percent certain that uh, you know I well, I think it's very very hard to have any wealth if you don't have any geopolitical power, right? So there is uh, certainly there are certainly cases where increasing your geopolitical power will help you increase your wealth. Uh, but as you point out, that it doesn't always have to be the case, and there are going to be some of these. Uh, trade-offs that actually aren't worth it right yeah and that's just my, my worth it for here. the people so that's the yeah. key is differentiating that uh, yeah. uh, po- geopolitical power could be beneficial to a particular person in a particular position while being harmful to the people of the country yeah exactly and, and that's that's what makes it such a, a scary possibility uh because you know a, a company for example can't sell you know it, this the value of its assets with the promise that peter jacobson is going to continue to come buy for me I don't have to buy from Walmart, for example, if they they sell to someone else. But the government can say, hey, I'm going to give you all this tax revenue, whether or not Peter agrees to give the tax revenue to you. And so there's sort of like this insidious thing that happens in 
these political institutions that don't happen in market institutions that allow politicians to turn my money into their geopolitical power without actually providing any benefit to me. Exactly. Right. Yeah. Uh, so when I said at the beginning, like these two issues get conflated in the corporate press, they say this is good for America. Um, what who it actually is good for is vote, those very few people you were talking about in Washington. Right. Mm -hmm. uh, whereas an increase in wealth is what would actually be good for, uh, you know, Joe Sixpack. Yeah. And I, I think there's a little bit of benefit that that clouds this, too. So we, I think it's a classic case of concentrated benefits and widespread costs. So the American taxpayers, we all chip in basically, what is 40, uh, 40 billion cost us individually, right? A buck or two or whatever. Right. Yeah. So it's it's widespread that way um, in terms of the cost of this activity. And it's concentrated with the military industrial complex or otherwise. So I think we, we've identified that. But I, I think with this particular case, there's also this heart-wrenching feel-good thing for the taxpayers that's a slight benefit. Yeah, that's like, true. Oh, I'm really glad us, you know, rich Americans are helping out the Ukrainians. And, you know, so I think there's a little bit of non-monetary benefit that way going on. I, I still think, yeah, it's arguable on whether uh, it's a good place to go. Or Are there not, any but... poor people in the U.S.? <laughs> I know. No, don't, don't get me started on that. Yeah, no, I... I still think the inefficiencies uh, are there, but it's it's really this rational ignorance argument that yeah. um, people are like, eh, I get a little tiny bit of feel good and I don't really have time to pay attention to the true cost benefit analysis. And Yeah, the, I mean, the problem there is like, the reason they're getting that feel good is because they've been told that they're doing something good, right? right? Um, and they could just as well be told that they were doing something good by uh, helping a problem that's actually you yeah. Know, uh, yeah. domestic. Yeah, and I don't think Russ was disagreeing with that. And I, yeah. I, I would say, uh, <laughs> You know, if listeners, if you're interested in this idea, I, we had Chris Coyne on our podcast. It would have been a few months back, really, uh, maybe even close to a year now. Uh, and he talked about his book about basically military propaganda and how, you know, military propaganda will do yeah. things like, you know, pay the NFL or pay like movie producers or give them equipment in order to uh, leave like pro-militarism messages in these different things. You know, whether that's like the Transformers movies or like halftime shows, things like that. Uh, so, yeah, not only... Uh, do people get this feel good? Uh, we could call it a benefit. I think it's an illusory benefit is the point we're all making, but they get this feel good thing out of conflicts. Uh, that's actually engineered. Like we know uh, that that's something that's pursued because the U.S. government literally spends money on doing it. Yeah. Uh, so it, it's it's certainly a fact. I mean, very early on, I had some Russian friends that I talked to and, and uh, uh, even people from Ukraine. And really, the story could be told much differently that we've got. Uh, two similar type of governments with authoritarian type regimes and cronyist oligarchs. And that's who's really battling it out here. And yes, there's lots of innocents that are being harmed, but no, that story doesn't play. It must be good guys and bad guys. Uh, it's got to be yeah. good. We got to stick to the script and, well, and, and that'll help further the story. But in reality, we have a podcast early on that uh, Ukraine was very low on the economic freedom index because of Corruption issues and other things. I mean, that's just data that's out there. Yeah, well, and, and unfortunately, even if the situation in Ukraine is like different from every other conflict that we've been in and it doesn't follow the trend, you should at least have enough intellectual humility to notice the trend. And the trend is this. We go to a war in Iraq and Afghanistan. Four or five years later, we all kind of look around and be like, who was dumb enough to ever support this? This was the stupidest thing in the world. How did we all get tricked? What's What's going on here? 
And then we say, oh, I'm not going to fall for that one again. <laughs> uh, and that happens with, you know, like Vietnam, too. Uh, mm -hmm. Towards the beginning, there was support. And then the support wanes pretty quickly in that instance. But it eventually wanes. And it just seems to happen kind of over and over again. And it's always the case that this one event that we've stepped into, like, this is the one. This is the one where uh, it's us fighting against the pure evil. And if we don't stop the pure evil, it will be unleashed and destroy the whole world, whether it's weapons of mass destruction or you know, the anti-liberal regime or whatever it is. Uh, it, so so each time this happens, I just grow increasingly suspicious that like this is actually like the sort of conflict that we're not going to look back in in five years and think, man, uh, what a sad thing that we did. Uh, and so that this uh, that's kind of the glasses that I put on whenever I hear of any of these conflicts, because the propaganda will always be loud, whether or not it's a worthy conflict. You're always going to feel pressure to support it, whether or not it's a worthy conflict, just like everybody did with Afghanistan and Iraq. Uh, even though, you know, the young people today don't remember those wars there, it would have been very difficult. In fact, it was very difficult for anyone to say, no, these aren't justified wars. That's why most everyone supported them left and right. And you, you should just have some like humility, some epistemic humility and say, well, maybe this is a situation like that. And I just don't know it yet. Yeah. So in Jonathan Haidt's book, uh, he talks about after 9-11, um, you know, and he's a, he's like, I'm a progressive liberal. Uh, I've never really been that patriotic, but after 9-11, I bought a United States uh, flag sticker and put mm -hmm. it on my car. Like it, you know, and I supported, you know, mm -hmm. it, there was just this support for the, you know, the country. And, and a lot of people actually made fun of Jonathan Haidt admitting that in his book. Um, and then if you go look at these people's Twitter profiles, yeah, it's, you know, they slap a Ukrainian flag on there. And it's like, dude, how do you think this, like, doesn't this, how do you not see this happening in real time to you um, when you only see it in hindsight? Um, yeah. Yeah. And uh, look, this is not me saying like Ukraine is bad, right? This is just me saying, as Peter pointed out, the propaganda is loud and it is, uh, it is selling you a, um, good versus evil story. Yeah, and, and to be clear, um, I think there is a good versus evil component to this story. Like, I do think that yeah. Ukra Ukraine did not invade, Russia invaded, right? right. And so I do there think is, out of the right. bad guys here, Putin bad guy, Ukraine good guy, like if, if we want to paint the black and white. But that doesn't mean that every single step involved by, you know, Ukraine is a good step, for example. But I said the Ukraine, that's, that's uh, you're not allowed to say that anymore. I learned yeah. the other day. Yeah, you got to say Ukraine. The Ukraine is off limits. Uh, okay. Because the Ukraine implies it's a region of Russia. Uh, oh. Ukraine is a country. Yes, yeah, so I learned this the other day. Kind of like Kiev and Kiev. I don't know what's the, is the right of one of those. Yeah, you're right. <laughs> but, the name of, uh, like, uh, it's the Gambia. In Africa, that's like its actual title. <laughs> Don't undermine Gambia's uh, sovereignty, <laughs> Justin. No, but but uh, again, so so the, so the point is not that we're saying that like, oh, this is a completely neutral conflict, and both sides are you know good and both. Sides. No, there can be a good guy and a bad guy, but we should recognize that historically, we have always in these conflicts, as a country, said, oh, this is the good guy and this is the bad guy, and we really need to send a bunch of money to the good guy, and it always bites us in the butt. Uh, since World War II, we can, you know, say that was a good one. And then past World War II, it always bites us in the butt. And so at what point do we turn around and be like, maybe there is a good and bad guy when you like weigh everything that's going on, but actually we still need to be careful uh, trying to support the good guy because it's actually going to blow up in our faces and their faces uh, and the faces of mostly innocent people. Uh, and that's really where the concern is. It's like whether or not this is bad guy, good guy, that doesn't imply that there's action. So I want to circle back to a point that uh, you made that I wasn't thinking about that I 
think there's a plausible argument with the value to the conflict continuing with the weakening Russia that is there value to uh, continuing to pour in resources, not negotiate, push them all the way out, let's say, or whatever, if that's kind of the end game to kind of say, Russia, don't ever do this again. Like that long-term, this whole taking of property concept is off limits like we kind of thought it was, but then Putin didn't care. So weakening Russia that way, is is that a potential long-term benefit? I don't think so. Uh, first of all, I don't think those lessons ever get learned. Uh, I think it's impossible for a country to learn them. Um, yeah. Even if Putin learned it, that lesson dies of Putin. Right. Um, it's not like, uh, you know, the entire point of uh, a state is that it has a border and these borders often change and the, re- the way they often change is through war. And that if you look back in history, it doesn't yeah. seem like that has, uh, there has been anything but uh, conflict over borders um, with relative periods of, uh, of peace. And it seems like the ti- the times of peace are the times that are actually good. And when, uh, you know, when in fact, goods and services can flow across borders because uh, two countries are uh, largely at peace. And the entire point of that tweet from the Washington Post was that um, we are not going to try to negotiate for peace, right? Mm-hmm. To yeah. not try to reestablish a border that isn't going to make anybody happy, right? But that both sides can agree with. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's one thing. So uh, Russ's question, and I, it's a good question because like this is a question a lot of people ask is like, oh, can we leverage our assets to weaken Russia in a way that will like prevent worse conflicts in the future? Because like then this would be like, a, it's almost like a Pareto improvement, right? Yeah. Is we, we've skipped around the really bad thing by using fewer of our assets. But ultimately, like this doesn't fly with me for the reason that like there's no such thing as punishing Russia. At the end of the day, this is the problem is like economic sanctions on Russia are economic sanctions on the people of Russia who, by and large, probably have very little political say in anything about their lives. So not not only this conflict, but the choice of their presidents. Um, I, I have significant doubts that people are super engaged in the Russian political process. I doubt they believe their vote matters very much. And I think there's probably good reason for them to think that. And at the end of the day, uh, blowing up people who are drafted, uh, starving out or freezing out people who are citizens of a country that they have no say in. uh, Yeah, maybe it puts a little bit of pressure on Putin not to do something like this again. But most of that pressure is going on people who don't deserve it. Uh, So for me, uh, things like economic sanctions on Russia uh, for this, I I don't see that as benefiting, uh, you know, the U.S. in the future. If anything, it could breed resentment. There could be blowback from this, that the people of Russia look back on the winter where we didn't have any fuel. I mean, Russia's not running out of fuel, actually. They're fine on that. (laughs) But we didn't have any, like, food because all of our our economy got shut down by these sanctions. And it was the Americans who did that. Uh, And we have instances, uh, like, actual, like, cases of instances where people commit these acts against U.S. and U.S. citizens, and they say explicitly, I'm doing this because the U.S., you know, drone bombed my friend or this sort of thing or that sort of thing. So, yeah, I don't see this as a significant deterrence uh, to Russia or Russians. Uh, if anything, it, it could breed hostility to, to make things even worse. All right. Um, I got one last thing. Uh, what about the argument of, and this is for Justin, you know, since you're our ethical master, uh, it's just the right thing to do. You know, wealth and geopolitical power aside, 
this is just the right thing to do. We need to help the Ukrainians. I don't know what the right thing to do means independent of all those considerations that we talked about. There's, uh, there's since any action on the part of a government, you know, has to be paid for, right? Um, Peter's right about blowback. Um, it's not even blowback. We don't even just have to worry about blowback or, uh, you know, lives that, that are being hurt in Russia due to economic sanctions that we place on Russia. Um, yeah. In fact, we have to worry about uh, the impoverishment and what's looking like it's going to be a very scary Euro uh, winter for Western Europe yeah. because they are no longer able to get fuel uh, from Russia. So uh, the amount of, um, you know, uh, misery that we are uh you know, either causing or, you know, if you want to take a weaker uh, claim, at least um, okay with not preventing, um, I think that that clearly outweighs whatever benefit that, mm -hmm. um, that that would come from this. Yeah. And then the thing is, here we sit on the other side of the globe, uh, kind of being a major uh, player in this when the Europeans and other people that are going to face some serious uh, consequences and, and misery, like you said, uh they're at the table but somehow we're at the table in a big way <laughs> yeah it's like it's very weird saying you know that you know we go hey hey you guys fight right uh yeah 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 i i think at the end of the day like a, a decent rule of thumb is that the right thing to do is always to encourage and push for peace like to, to some extent the hippies have it completely right on foreign policy this is a weird place where like the 70s left and i will, will always converge in a very important way and <laughs> The reason is pretty simple. Even in instances where peace would be the wrong thing, where it's necessary to fight, uh, there's enough people who are going to support the fight in that case that you're pushing towards peace is not going to make a negative difference. And so if you had, you know, gotten on stage in World War II and said, I just want peace, like this would be maybe the wrong, wrong thing to do, but you weren't going to turn around to the U.S. or Great Britain or, or prevent World War II and cause, you know, more chaos to be created by the Nazis or anything. Uh, but in instances where it's a bad thing, where the conflict is creating more harm than good, so not World War II, but, you know, Iraq, uh, for example, famously, basically everybody is now in hindsight says, oh, I don't like that. Uh, lobbying for peace there, uh, if you could have made a difference, would have been very good and certainly the right thing to do. And so it's almost just a good default setting to, to be in favor of peace. Uh, because it seems like there's no downside, only upside. And it seems like war, you know, the saying is war is the health of the state, right? Which is another way of saying that the state always has its incentives structured such that war yeah. seems like a better idea. The state. Um, yeah, yeah there, there's there's going to be a champion for war on, on yeah. in, in every conflict. You never have to worry about that. So you don't have to worry about supporting that side. It's going to take care of itself. Uh, but on the other hand, there might not always be champions for peace. Yeah. Well, that that looks like a good spot to wrap since we're saying that the Gortney Institute falls on the side of peace, right? Uh, so wherever that, whatever that means from a policy standpoint, um, peace is a good good spot to go to. So for long-term human flourishing. All right. Well, this has been a production of the Gortney Institute here at Otto University. I'd like to thank you all for listening. Five-star rating help us, helps other people find us. And otherwise, email this off to your friends if you think they'd like to listen in. Other than that, be fruitful and multiply. Thanks.